I'm Steve Lascauzo, and this is The Way. You're listening to This is The Way podcast and the Star Wars Andor Season 1 Episode 6 Reaction and Discussion Episode. We called it! The episode is called The Eye. Just like, well, Episode 7, I think, of... The Rings of Power. Award us all your imaginary internet points for the week. You know, especially when we also came close to how the episode would end. Though, we should admit, more made it out of the Aldani job than we expected. At least, initially, right? The latest episode does appear to be the capper of the second story arc trilogy. And it puts us at the halfway point for season one in a 12-episode season. Before I continue, let's make some stuff clear. Everything in this show is taking place before the movie Rogue One. We know what happens to Cash and Andor at the end. If you choose to listen to a podcast about an episode of a show without having seen that episode, it's not spoiling anything. You know what you're going to get when you press play. You will hear about this week's episode of Andor. I will reference other Star Wars shows and movies that have already been released. Not caught up? Well... Please, come back some other time. If you're ready, well... Let's go! The writer for episodes four through six is Dan Gilroy, showrunner Tony Topic Gilroy's brother. Their father, Frank... Man, he taught those boys well. Now, Frank was an American playwright, screenwriter, and film producer, and a director. He won a Tony Award for The Subject Was Roses in one of Martin Sheen's first starring roles on stage, one which he later reprised in film. Star Wars has certainly benefited from Tony and Dan's work on the series so far. But I don't want to scare anyone here. Tony is only listed as the writer on the last two episodes of season one, which means we will get non-Gilroys for the next four after six solidly written ones. Next week will be Stephen Schiff, and then three by Bo Willimon. Tony's two episodes to close out the season will be directed by Benjamin Karen, who also directs next week's episode written by Schiff. Toby Haynes, director of the first three Tony Gilroy scripts, and the first three episodes of Andor, directs episodes 8, 9, and 10. And those scripts, those first three scripts, I mean, are the first three Andor scripts, not his first three scripts ever. (laughs) Now, I'm not worried, but I am going to be aware if things start to slide in the quality department, if you know what I mean. I mean, we're going to know if it's the writing that has been the really strong suit, or maybe Tony's just really got a tight ship going. You know who's going to get more work now? Susanna White, director of these Last three Dan Gilroy episodes. Fantastic job. I really do hope it leads to a lot more work for her. I hope this means we're going to see her and Dan back working together in season two. The runtime for episode six shows up as 54 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page. Now you know me. I like to time things out. It is the longest episode of the season so far. The action, though, runs just shy of 45 minutes From the start of the Andor title screen, you know, the one we're used to at the open, until it cuts to black from Laughing Luthen. 
Nicholas Bertel gives us another awesome variation on the theme music. And the more I hear them, the more I wonder, why can't this just be standard television, right? Yes, I know. It's more work for the composers. But having these, you know, unusual and interesting title scenes uh, vary, I feel like it's deserved. Now, at the time of my note-taking, there wasn't an update to Spotify's list of main title themes by Bertel for Andor. It still only had the first three episodes' versions on there. I'll keep my eye on it this week. Get it? The eye? The name of the episode? You have to explain it to me! If you have to explain a joke, there is no joke! Should I mention that Mark Hamill voiced that cartoon version of the Joker? No, I shouldn't explain that to The thumbnail description available on the show's Disney Plus Episodes tab reads, With cover from a spectacular local festival, the Aldani mission reaches a point of no return. The description on the show's episode page in Disney Plus, it's more descriptive, reading, Colorful local ceremonies and a spectacular meteorological light show serve as cover for Cash and Andor and the team of infiltrators who push forward on their mission to infiltrate a heavily fortified Imperial garrison. I've set the stage. Now let's talk about the players. You think anybody's listening? The show is Andor, and that character is played by Diego Luna. Luthanrail is played by Stellan Skarsgård. Genevieve O'Reilly plays Mon Mothma. Those three seem to be getting top billing, but... Even the actors taking on the supporting roles have been making those characters shine almost as bright. ISB supervisor Dedra Miro makes a brief appearance toward the end, and Denise Gao makes every movement and word count whenever she's on screen. Faye Marseille, the waif from Game of Thrones, she plays Vel Sartha here, and ditto. Verada Sethu plays Sinta Kaz. Elizabeth Dulau is Clea Marquis, Luthen's assistant at the shop, and I've said it already, I want to see her survive and flourish in the Rebellion, because I just want to see more of that character. Anton Lesser is back. Like Marseille, another Game of Thrones actor, he played Kyburn there. He's major part of guys of the Imperial Security Bureau here. Stanley Townsend has been around a long time in British theater, TV, and film. He's done voices for RuneScape, Mass Effect, and World of Warcraft. Voice a character in Cars 2. He was in an episode of the BBC's Sherlock. He turns Commandant J-Hold Behas from hated imperial idiot jerk father to just a guy trying to defend his family in just a few short scenes. Alex Lothar plays Karis Nemec. He served the character very well. Sule Remy was excellent as Lieutenant Gorn and he will be missed. Eben Moss Backrack, you son of a gun. The traitor tricked me. He was hiding in plain sight with all those tattoos. The sob story. Well done, sir. Arvel Skeen will not be missed. Well, Cashin sure didn't, right? <laughs> Terramin Barcona, former Stormtrooper. Nice reveal on that, by the way. And now we know... And now it makes sense how Gershwin Eustache Jr. played him. The Chieftain, played by longtime BBC actor David Heyman. I don't mean the Harry Potter producer, it's, it's spelled different too. Colonel Pedigar is Richard Katz, and he's the one-legged prisoner from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. You know the one that Rocket had Star-Lord get the leg from? 
Dan Lee, voice of Thomas and Friends Yong Bao, does not get a last name. He's just Corporal Number One. The Wandering Soldier is played by Harry Anton. He was Bressel in The Last Kingdom on Netflix. I enjoyed that series. Michelle Duncan plays Rabota Behaz, wife of the Commandant and mother to Leonard. The son of the Commandant, Leonard, is played by Alfie Todd. The man who shot Lieutenant Gorn, Corporal Kimsey, is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. alumni Nick Blood. There's lots of other actors listed in the credits, and I don't mean that they didn't do great work by not naming them, but there has to be a line somewhere, and I checked every name that I could find, at least, to see if there was a past Star Wars or a Marvel tie. The resumes for most of the characters were much shorter, frankly, less interesting to me, except for, well, Aiden Cook. He played Two Tubes in Rogue One, Bulio in Rise of Skywalker. He's played other characters, too. He was the actor in the makeup for Dr. Quadpaw in this episode six of Andor, too. And I did see it on Twitter that Paul Warren and puppeteer Matthew Lyons were the arms. And Warren has done a lot of work on things like Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Harry Potter, Thor of the Dark World, and, yes, Star Wars The Force Awakens. But, man, Dr. Quadpaw, huh? Pretty Star Warsy name, if you ask me. Nobody here gives their real name. There's the Disney Plus splash screen, a previously on segment, the Lucasfilm Star Wars sequence, and then the title sequence. The new theme variation from composer Nicholas Bertel leads us to Aldani, and the rebels camp on the ridge above the garrison the morning of the mission. Nemec couldn't sleep well. He's worried. Andor's trying to settle his nerves. Karis Nemec's eyes are wide open to the Imperial machine, and we get some more great politicking from him to Clem. He's pretty sure that that's not his real name, and, you know, well, we know he's right. He also muses about whether accepting the help of mercenaries lessens the validity of his struggle. This is ends justifying the means talk here. He's got a manifesto, but he's still tweaking it. He's It's not perfect. It's not finished. I thought it was interesting that there is this writer here writing this manifesto about what it takes to defeat the Empire. Yet this is a show about the formation of that rebellion. So the writers of the show, in this case and so far the Gilroys, they're also working out what would that take, right? <laughs> what would it take to write a story about a guy who's writing a story about the Empire? Yeah. So on the top level... Karis Nemec is asking what it will take, and Andor, a pre-existing character, is telling him that those that he's fighting don't care. You know, you can sleep when it's over. The role of mercenaries in the galactic struggle for freedom. My conclusion is simple. Weapons are tools. Those that use them are, by extension, functional assets that we must use to our best advantage. The Empire has no moral boundaries. Why should we not take hold of every chance we can? Let them see how an insurgency adapts. Well, you have right. The Empire doesn't play by the rules. And how am I wrong? They don't care enough to learn. What about the Empire, though? Should we go back to Coruscant to hear how the Empire feels about people like the Rebels? Well, we don't have to. Commandant J. Hold Behas is hosting Colonel Pettigar from Coruscant, and he explains for us, through his monologue, just how little the Empire thinks about Aldani, and, by extension, the rest of the galaxy that refuses to adapt to their rules. 
the dehumanization, the disrespect right there, front and center. The first two scenes have summed up the entire struggle. Andor sees it for what it is and explains it to the visionary who is in the middle of describing a struggle that he previously mentioned was difficult because, you know, there are so many atrocities that it makes it difficult to focus because, you know, if there was just one, you could see what was going on. But when there's so many, it's hard. Well, now here's an Imperial officer revealing, yep, that's exactly what we're doing. You put a number of options on the table. And they're so wrapped up in choosing, they fail to notice you've given them nothing they thought they wanted at the start. Nemec just got done saying mercenaries and weapons were assets. That's all the Empire interprets these people that they oppress. They are assets to move as they see fit, and they'll do it in whatever way causes the least resistance for them. Behaz isn't just describing this to Pedigar, though. Lieutenant Gorn has to sit there and listen. Now, this isn't a case of Peter Quill against Thanos, though. He's he's not reacting. He's just sticking to the program. Quite predictably, what began as 500 pilgrims at the bottom has already dwindled down to... Where are we now, Lieutenant? We counted 60 last night, sir. Not that long ago, they'd put 15,000 out there. Have they any idea this is the last time they'll be allowed up here? No, no, there's no problem in that. We spent the last decade promoting an Imperial viewing festival down in the Enterprise Zone. They'll have that going forward. It is the Sacred Valley, is it not? Well, ultimately they will return, won't they, Colonel? Then you need plenty of arms and legs to build all you've got planned. You've been here the longest, haven't you, Lieutenant? Yes, sir. Seven years. Will the Darnies let us build our new facility in peace? I don't see them having a choice. The Eye, Colonel. You're in for a treat. It really is something to see. Quite the celestial spectacle. I'm looking forward to it. I know, I'm a little clip-heavy here at the beginning, but as I said, the writer, Dan Garroy, in this case, is front-loading. Not just the episode, but he's giving us a parallel to this whole struggle. Celestial spectacle, indeed. After the explanation in the control tower for the dam, Behaz and Gorn head down to the valley floor, and Behaz stresses the importance of things running smoothly. It's ironic, because he's telling Gorn as if it's something he hasn't been planning for months. He, you know, We know, of course, Gorn is obsessed at the moment with a very different plan going well and running smoothly. So, of course, he wants things to go well. He's even sent the best men out of the garrison to <clears throat> make sure things go smoothly. I've brought in 30 sentries from Alkenzi. I'll have them close at hand to supervise. I've sent our best men to the perimeters for insurance. Tonight must be perfect. Yeah. That's the plan, sir. Perfect. I want that word ringing in your ears. B has might as well have been talking about the writing on this show. We cut to another scene where what's happening in the action parallels to what's happening in the story. Two teams named Valley and Echo are dialing in and locking in communication using old technology. Yes, I do know Echo is the name that they gave to the base in on Hoth and Empire Strikes Back. Yes, that's cool. But don't miss, the two teams are getting dialed in, locked in. The It's a synchronizing watches scene. But it's also using old technology that won't or isn't supposed to fail. You know, back when things lasted longer, were more analog, less controllable by software upgrades. The Rebels are dealing with things that the Empire casts away because they know the Empire forgets that those ways still work. 
they themselves are casted off from the Empire. It's not hard to find evidence of that in the script. Gilroy gives it to us immediately in the backstory for Terraman, held back until this very moment. Let's pick it up! Falling behind! He likes giving orders, doesn't he? Makes sense, right? What do you mean? They didn't tell you, did they? He was a stormtrooper. Really? Pick it up! Should have been here when Cinta found out. They slaughtered our whole family. Pick it up! It's also interesting that Skeen is the one to give us that information, right? At least based on what happens later. The next group of scenes are outside with the Valley One and Echo One teams. Echo One's getting into position to play their part as the extra security assigned by Gorn. Valley One is preparing for the water infiltration on the other side of the lake that is formed by the dam. Approaching the temple area are Aldani natives. They're dressed in clothes similar to those being worn as disguises by the rebels. They're not speaking basic, but I'm not sure if that's because they don't understand basic or they just think, you know, that's part of the empire which they hate. Gorn is on top of the dam hosting the engineer and the first meteor or crystal from the Eye of Aldani shower streaks across the sky. This planet isn't worth much to anyone until this every three year occurrence. Terraman reminds Echo Team they're not to engage with the natives who think they're Imperial security, so that's why they hate them. And I also like the touch where, you know, if we meet up with an Alkanzi base group of soldiers, we indicate we're from the garrison. If we meet up with a garrison group of soldiers, then we're from Alkenzi. That's a nice line dropped in to tell us, you know, they've thought everything through. And so have the writers. In fact, as time went on, I was wondering if this plan wasn't going to surprise us all and everyone survives. Yeah, mm, sorry. Yeah, no. Valley Team has to contend with the Bro Squad, maybe the first surprise of the mission so far. And one of the members of that security detail actually stops to urinate just a few feet away from their cover position, Valley's cover position. They're not discovered, and the Aldani natives pass by Echo Team with the security force in front, and then Echo Team picks up the rear and falls in. So, pieces of the plan are fitting together perfectly. Robota. Undressing Leonard. He's 12, he can dress himself. Come and look at this sash. None of this was stored properly, it's all compressed. Perhaps you've expanded? J-Hold is trying to fit into his Imperial uniform, and he's having trouble. Great metaphor for what he and his family are going through. The Commandant is not completely sympathetic, but we're left to imply a lot about his struggle commanding this garrison. We hear his wife complains a lot, his son doesn't respect him, feigns illness a lot. Rabota is his enabler, the son's enabler. She's also subtly disrespectful. But let's be fair, J-Hold is not handling these things well either. His struggle is he signed on for a job in the Empire, just wants to provide, but where we heard the soldier asking to be prefect on Ferex, that guy was young, probably free to dream about his future. Here, J-Hold B has is grown old and bigger, possibly stalling in his career, so he has to resort to sucking up to an engineer from Coruscant. There's not really anything wrong with Rabota not liking where they're at. It's pretty normal for a young kid to rebel. Well, rebel, rebel. 
and to be disrespectful to a parent. It's not strange that a man struggling to advance in his career is doing it in a way that causes problems in his family life. It's all very relatable. We're not supposed to like the Empire, but just like the rebels aren't perfect angels and some are in it for the money rather than the purity of the cause, the Empire is also made up of, yes, straight-up evil people, but also families that haven't been presented with wonderful options. The key, as J-Hold sees it, is going to be impressing this dignitary, and begrudgingly, his family's going to have to accept that and fall in line. Look, you want to get out of here, do you? Get that transfer, leave this stinking planet, you certainly whine about it enough. Colonel Pettigall will be making those decisions, though I want everyone on their best behavior this evening. I look forward to seeing that. Next up is the beginning stages of the mission. Echo One reaches the temple and Lieutenant Gorn sets up the next stage by positioning them to follow the Commandant and his family inside, you know, after a brief ceremony. Meanwhile, Valley One waits for a couple of crystals to streak across the sky for cover, and that lets them approach the dam from underwater. They make it across, and a late patrol causes the delay, but no great problem. Still, things seem to be going all right. Gorn arrives at the Commandant's residence with goat pelts. It's explained that they trade them ceremonially for a three-year lease. But it's more of a nuisance dealing with these locals. They're, they're going to do it, though, to keep the peace while they have to. These men from Alkenzie. Yes, sir. Back at the temple, Echo One is worried that Valley hasn't checked in. They have a crucial function, and it seems like the whole mission hinges on this. Remember, I was questioning last week why that was left out. Gorn arrives back at the temple grounds with the Commandant, who, as we just heard, just trusts that Gorn has done his job. He's hired extra security. Well, ostensibly, to make sure that the locals are under control. He hasn't bothered to learn the language, so he lets Gorn converse with the Aldanis that have gathered to facilitate this trade, and they want to pray or celebrate at the temple. Vel and Sinta, meanwhile, are finally ready. They seemingly have jammed communications, or have set that up, to jam communications from the Alkenzi airbase. The check-in is made, but Vel struggles with the weight of the decision to commit what is truly, you know, the lives of these people to a dangerous mission. Are we going or not? Vel. translating from Gorn keeps things polite and peaceful between the chief and the Aldanis and this group of Imperials. Vel and Sinta repel to the bottom of the dam for the next phase. Meanwhile, Echo One falls in behind the recession to the dam, and I like the scene of the Aldani chieftain just tossing the goat hides to the fire. They presented ornate brushed hides, right, with a nice wrapping, while the Empire just furnishes them with what must have seemed like an insult to them. It also wasn't lost on me that they basically traded hides. But what for? I thought the hides were for the lease, so they traded hides and got some hides back, and they get to have a lease? Gorn decides the door sentries to the valley to make way for Echo Team to follow them inside. The Commandant and his family go in, and the Colonel too, and that's when Cashin shuts the door Starting Phase 2. Echo Team takes control and takes hostages. But the Colonel 
pulls his pistol and points it at Nemec. Let the boy go. Let the boy go! Colonel, please. Nobody has to die. It's tense, but Nemec is saved by a well-aimed blast from Cinta. She and Vel have arrived via ladder, and Cinta kills the colonel. Gorn's cover still intact, though, since he's not with the group. And in fact, the soldier he left at the top of the hill, he now sends down into the valley and says, you know, go enjoy the eye. He's still playing benevolent officer Gorn here. At the temple, the Aldani continue their customs, while inside, Echo and Valley teams continue the plan. One path, one choice. We win, or everyone dies. Starts now. J-Hold will take him to the payroll vault. Sinta will hold the family hostage. Echo and Valley's comm devices are working. The Empires are not. So hooray for old tech, right? But Corporal Kimsey, on top of the dam, is suspicious about a sudden outage of communication. Now, had this happened while the eye was occurring, he might have reasoned a different cause, but the first test of the plan is starting to take place. And inside the room set up for the grand dinner during the eye, the Commandant's family is now going to be held along with a skeleton crew. Your comms have been disabled. Ours are working. If you don't help us, your family will die. If you slow us down, if you stall, if you argue, if you play us in any way, they will die. You kill us anyway. Because that's what you do, right? No. If we get what we came for, everyone walks away. But if we go down, you're right there with us. 14 minutes. Move. It can't be any clearer. Cinta is going to take care of this group all by herself, and the rest of the team goes down to the vault. There is a team of slackers. I'm betting specifically designed to be there. Since they can't see the eye, this D team, they're playing cards. Maybe Sabak, or maybe a variation of it. I don't know if it's straight up Sabak, though. They're not paying attention, and they're not prepared. So the rebels easily subdue them. Nemec and Andor prep the ship. Skeen tells the D-team, you're going to help us load the ship or you're going to be shot. The Commandant also urges compliance. Outside, the Aldani are chanting and dancing and celebrating. Inside the vault, Jay holds handprint, unlocks the vault doors. But now we see what the charges were for. It blows the straps holding the credit trays, and it is time to load. Let's go! Echo 1, Echo 1 on spot. Echo 1, Echo 1 on spot. Valley 1, loud and clear. Taking the vault and bring the vault door. And repeat, we're in. I'm afraid to now. Copy that. All good up here. Get ready. Alkenzie should be calling in soon. The loading will begin, but unfortunately, the communications they've set up, they're not completely without problems. Kimsey hears some staticky chatter, and then he clears it up, and he makes out that someone's inside the vault. The Alkenzie airbase, meanwhile, radios for a response to the tower, and, you know, there's a vault breach indicator going off. Why aren't you responding? Well, Cinta does not respond, but more than that, she shuts down the lights. Kimsey then gets a special squad together, from where I don't know, and he makes for the vault. 
Gorn arrives, shocking B has the Commandant. You. Quit gawking and get pushing. Close it down, let's go, last call. You'll hang for this. Seven years serving you. I deserve worse than that. Are we good to go? We're good. Okay, come on, come on. It seems like things were going well, but Alkenzie has decided to scramble TIE fighters because of the lack of response. Kimsey arrives with his squad, but sees the Commandant and Gorn. So he doesn't just shoot first, he asks questions. Gorn tries to be smooth, indicates, hey, this is a secret mission. You're not approved. He seeks approval from Behaz, and he wants him to help him out. Like, tell him to leave. That guy's family's in peril, remember. Sorry, sir, but this is a classified mission, and you're not cleared to be here. Commandant? Tell him, sir. Tell him he needs to leave. Sir? I am giving you a direct order, Corporal! What is going on here? Fortunately, the weight issue, strenuous lifting, and just maybe general failure of health causes a heart attack at the worst possible time. When B has fell, I was like, oh no. Kimsey begins firing. And though Skeen does return fire, Gorn becomes the first casualty for the team. Cashin goes to start the ship, but a hiding soldier follows him in and grapples with him. Vel is pinned down, so Terraman tries to reach her, but Skeen does not cover his run well. He like takes one or two shots and then he, he goes back behind his cover. So Terraman goes down for casualty number two. Nemec frees Cashin from the soldier's grasp, with a well-aimed shot to the soldier's back when he rolls over. So he shoots a guy in the back. Then Vel and Skeen make it into the ship with Nemec, and as the TIE fighters end up hitting the skies at the Alkenzi airbase, Andor punches the throttle to the ship. They're not in space, they're on the ground in Aldani, so that sudden thrust is way too much for them to maintain their grips on the railings. They all fly back into the credit stacks, but a stacked Dolly crunches into Nemec. He can't feel his legs, and as they hit the tunnel entrance, the eye of Aldani is starting to form up proper. Vel spikes Nemec with a med spike that must be like an adrenaline shot. Because Nemec has one more very important part to play in this escape. Climb! Climb! Look at the window! Climb! Move! Climb! Now! What did you give him? A pet here! I don't have the speed to make it! And now you want me to climb? Climb! Climb, just like K2SO will eventually tell Cashin and Jin inside the Tower of Scarif. Man, this chase by the TIE Fighters and the visuals of the eye are fantastic television. The sounds of the TIE Fighters brought me back to the original trilogy. Hey, our boy Nemec is hurt. We just didn't think it was going to come this way. Everyone Aldani, on Aldani is transfixed by this glow 
in the skies. Maybe no one there realizes what just happened inside the dam, right? Inside the transport ship, however, we know the cost. Nemec is going to need a doctor ASAP. A stop at one has been built into the plan just in case. Do they stop or head to the rendezvous? Skeen, it appears, wishes to save his friend. There's a doctor. We have it built into the contingency. She doesn't want to jeopardize the mission. This kid, I mean... This kid is the reason that we are here. He is alive. How do we get to the doctor? What a contrast to the first time we ever met Andor, isn't it? Now, I know they're completely different circumstances. But in Rogue One, he kills an injured informant. And this is different, I know. I don't deny that. But still, Skeen's words convinced him here. We'll soon find out that there might have been an ulterior motive. As Dr. Quadpa operates on Nemec's back on this strange moon, Skeen makes his case to Andor. What'd you tell me? You want to win and walk away. Well, 40 million apiece. Don't tell me you haven't thought about it. See, I can't fly the trawler, but I do have a safe place we can hole up. Between the two of us, we could be the winners here. It's an our rebellion for you. Oh, I'm a rebel. It's just, uh... Me against everybody else. Where would that put me? 40 million credits is enough for me to forget all about you. Your brother with the orchard? I don't have a brother. So just leave them here. Don't play the high mind with me. You're not here to save anybody but yourself. Again, I want some internet points because I kind of figured that there was going to be this crisis at the end where Cashin has to make a decision. But he's listening to Skeen basically admit to everything being a lie, and he's just in for the money. I saw the first minute you came into camp, you're just like me. We were born in the hole, and all we know is climbing over somebody else to get out. There's a moon eight parsecs from here with nobody home. Put that thing down, catch our breath. Split up the winnings. I don't know what the motivation is for Andor to kill him, other than it is true. If this guy survives, he is a definite security risk. So the best thing happened. This guy did get killed. Now, he didn't get killed during the mission, but maybe Andor suspected some of that. Anyway, it's just a really interesting way. He goes from compassion to bloodthirst. And Cashin cuts him off while well, he shoots him mid-sentence. Inside the doctor's operating room, we find out a crushed spine apparently is different from a lightsaber cut. At least 130-something years into the future, right? There's no back-to-suit for Nemec like there was for Finn. There's no mods here on this planet or moon to give an implant like Fennec Shand or Cobb Vanth. Maybe a spinal cord injury is just... Maybe it's just much more damaging. Maybe much more went on than just his back. Anyway, Nemec is gone. All that's left now is Vel and Cashin. I did everything I could. It's not you, Doc. And it's not what you think either. 
Skeen! Skeen! He's dead. He wanted to take the money and leave you here. He wouldn't do that. You're gonna have to think about that. You disgusting bastard. Taramin warned me. I'm taking my cut. The number I was promised. I'm leaving you the freighter and what's inside. I did my job. I'm done. And I wouldn't stick around if I were you. Return this to your friend. Wait. Nemec's manifesto. He said to give this to you. Andor just wants to leave, but Vel gives him Nemec's manifesto. Was, is this going to influence him? I mean, do we see him reading it? Or are we supposed to understand that he will have done so before the next episode? I mean, he's seemingly done with the rebellion. He wants to walk, right? Win and walk away. Perhaps the prose from Nemec eventually finds a way to the holonet or something. Maybe this manifesto provides a spark. We know Andor isn't done, so we know he returns. But the Empire isn't done either. And on Coruscant, Major Partagaz has called an all-hands-on-deck meeting at the ISBHQ. Long days and long nights ahead, because there's going to be, with apologies to Marva Andor... A reckoning over this attack. Also on Coruscant, Mon Mothma is making pleas to the Senate over the oppression of the Gormans. We heard a little bit about them one or two episodes ago. And we know that that's what causes her to walk away from the Senate and go into hiding. She's doing things the political way now. But this is a very different Senate from the one we saw in Revenge of the Sith. Many seats are empty. In some cases, maybe star systems were taken over by regional governors because of the opposition to the Empire. In some cases, maybe the delegates just don't think the Empire is going to listen and they no longer send delegates to the Senate. Or maybe the luxuries of Coruscant mean more than participating in politics. Or maybe like Ryloth's orn-free ta that we see in Rebels and the Clone Wars, I think. Maybe it's just a case of straight-up corruption. This is a boot to the throats of all Gormans, who've done nothing more than request their basic rights. My bill assails the coarse and blatant domination of a peaceful and faithful ally. We're not done, though, because at Luthen's shop, they're showing Deveronian jewelry to a customer. I, I love the writing touch here. A lost language that's from canon because of how the males and females of that planet interacted. But instead of being sad, as the woman says, Luthen sells her on it, allowing her to speak to her own truth. What a perfect commentary on our own society. But it's the comment from a waiting customer that truly shakes him. Or maybe it's just that one planet's name. How sad. No, it's liberating. You decide what it says. Your own secret language. Got anything from Aldani? Excuse me? Aldani. Big rebel attack last night. It's all the news. Well, I'll have to look. Maybe we have something in the back. Really? I was kidding.
Luthen laughing and sighing is where the episode ends. And I tried to be quick with a recap because the episode's pretty straightforward. A lot of action. Really great story. I could talk for hours and hours about all the way the writing fits so well and all the things that have payoffs throughout. How it's efficient yet descriptive. Brief but inspiring to the imagination. I mean, this is how great TV can be. I cannot wait for the next six episodes, which could take us anywhere leading into season two. Just six episodes left in season one. Will we see Saw in this next group of episodes? Is K2SO going to be saved for season two, or are we going to get to see him before the end of season one? You could just come in to tell me. Before we go, this is the last time I'll plead for help for the people of southwestern Florida. There's still a lot of help needed, and I'm not suggesting we forget them. But if you haven't already helped already, I feel like it's not going to be well-received any longer. So many still need help rebuilding after Hurricane Ian. If you can, the state of Florida has an official disaster relief fund that you can feel safe donating to at volunteerflorida.org forward slash donate FDF forward slash. Rebellions are built on hope. What about this podcast? Well, you can send feedbacks or comments on this podcast and we'll do our best to answer them and continue with next Wednesday's episode seven and the start of a new story arc. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast and send in your own thoughts and ideas via email to thisisthewaypodcast.gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at thisisthewaypod or on facebook.com at forward slash thisisthewaypod and our Linktree site has all the links at l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash thisisthewaypod. Thank you for joining me today for the sixth episode of the first season of Andor. I'm your host, Steve Lascazzo, and this is the way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.